You guys have no idea how outside of my comfort zone this sermon is this morning. I have never preached a sermon on marriage in my life. I've talked about marriage. Um, I've preached literally thousands of sermons, and I've never preached on it. I have preached about singleness and celibacy and how important it is to be single and how the church should hold up single people, but marriage, not so much. And if I can, um, uh, I'll give you the relationships, marriage, relationships, um, dating, the, uh, this will sort of have wide application. This is our text for this morning. Mainly, I haven't talked about it because I find it eminently boring. Uh, literally, if we are watching TV and there is a romantic subplot, I will yell boring at the TV and try to fast forward as quickly as possible through it. And Laura is jumping at the remote to stop me. She's a great woman. She really is. Um, I don't believe in the one. Like any of that kind of talk is nonsense in my worldview. Uh, God makes Adam and then he makes Eve, and he says, I hope this works, right? I mean, it's not like he had a lot. I literally think anyone, any man can marry any woman, any woman can marry any man, and they can make it work happily for the rest of their lives. I believe that. I don't I think it has anything to do with, with the one um, or anything like that. And I think I echo Paul in this, in this way of speaking. If you went on Google and you type in marriage sermons, I guarantee you a large portion of the marriage sermons that are going to show up are on the text of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. In chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, Paul talks and he talks and he talks and he talks about marriage. And the husband needs to love the wife and give his life up for her. And the, hu- and the wife needs to, to submit to the husband and look up to him. And there's this sort of this very, this very intense sort of a patriarchal thing that's happening here. And, and it delights some and scandalizes others and bores me. <laughs> and everyone misses the point. Because what's Paul's point? Nothing to do with marriage at all. He says, I'm talking about a great mystery. And what's the mystery I'm talking about? The church. And I'm using marriage as an illustration to talk about the church. And how much Christ loves the church. And he gave himself up for the church. And so what does the church do? We look up and we submit to Christ. And so the whole time that you get those sermons. And it's like you guys weren't even reading the text. Because Paul gave it right here. I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. And then he doubles back. Because some people are married. Right? And some people want to get married. (laughs) And so he doubles back. And he says, however, if you happen to be married, here's some good advice. Each of you should love your wife as you love yourself, and the wife should see that she respects her husband. This seems to me to be very good advice. In fact, it is in my um, not eminent experience. I've been married for 13 years. She's not in the room right now, but I think they can still hear in the nursery. Can they still? Yeah. yeah. We'll see how it goes. Um. And I've seen a lot of marriages come into being, and I have watched them fall apart in my office. And this seems to be very often uh, what is missing, this one little verse right here. I find frequently, not in all cases, but frequently men seem to miss this. Women want to be loved, not just for their bodies. They want to know that the whole of their being is adored. Men, if you can manage that, you will manage a good thing. 
men very frequently want to be respected. They want to be looked up to. They want to feel like they are, they are, they are meaningful in life. And women, if you can do this, you will do a good thing. Things will go well with you. This is why I find it so boring, because I find it so obvious, even though I practice it so poorly. <laughs> yes? Isn't it true? The deep things are not that deep. The simple things are sometimes the hardest things to wrap our minds around. As I have watched marriages fall apart, frequently I hear we don't love each other anymore, she doesn't respect me. And I think that we use these kinds of language, we use this kind of language, and we, and we fall into traps of talking about the one, and talking about love, and talking about emotions. And generally what I have found is that whoever is sitting across from me in marriage counseling has done one thing. They have completely and consistently ignored the Bible. And even if you're not married, I often find this just true in our relationships in general. Because God is very clear. And one of my favorite texts, and I've talked about it, I've preached on this more than marriage, actually. But I think it holds strongly true uh, throughout our lives, and so I want to touch on it again from Philippians chapter 2, and if you want to turn your Bibles, because we'll go back here several times, it is on page 980, if you're going to use the Pew Bible like I'm using, I encourage you to look it up. Paul says this, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. Imagine a marriage that looked like that. Could it last a lifetime? Wake up. Could it last a lifetime? I'm asking you. Yes. Imagine just a church full of people who did this, who did nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility counted others more significant than themselves. Would that be a nice church to go to? Would you like that? So how about we try it? How about you try it in your marriages? How about you try it with your children? How about you try it with strangers? How about you try it with your enemies at work? How about you try it? Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Imagine that. If I said, Laura, what do you want to watch tonight? It's going to stink. I know I'll hate it. But what would you like to watch tonight? Imagine, thank you, yes, we, we understand this, this is true, like let's have some real talk here this morning. What if you looked not to what you wanted, but to what your partner wanted, and you guys spent time arguing as much about that as you do about where you're going to eat, right? If you spent time thinking what is her interests, what is her wants? What are her desires? What is his interest? What are, have this mind, which is yours, in whom? Because we forget about him. I mean, we talk about him a lot. We sing about him a lot. We fight about him a lot, but we sure forget him a lot, don't we? Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus, who is the very nature God, that means, that means if we understand theology, this also is a deep mystery, and I'm not going to go too far into it, but we know that there is but one God, one God, one being named God. And yet that one God, that one being, 
has three personalities. We call them the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are just sort of name placers to talk about the characteristics of the personality. And so what we know about God is that God the Father and Jesus the Son are equal. One does not have more authority than the other. They are equal in power and glory and authority. They are equally God. And yet what does Jesus do? He kenosis. This is a Greek word that means empties himself. That he takes all of his power and his authority, all of his glory and his honor, and he takes it like a, like a, like a, a cup, and he pours it out so that God's will could fill him up so he could do the will of God. He puts himself completely outside of his desires, outside of his interests, and says, God, what is your, God the Father, what is your interest? And in earth, on earth, when we see Jesus, this is what we see him do, even to the point of death and death on the cross. So it's not like, hey, we're going to execute this guy, hey, we're going to kill this guy. It's we're going to drag him through the street, we're going to spit on him, we're going to mock him, we're going to shame him, we're going to strip him naked, we're going to beat him, and then we're going to hang him up, hang him up and watch him suffocate to death. That's how deep Jesus' submission to the Father's will is. And what does Paul say? Have this mind. Because it's been given to you, empowered by the Spirit. Imagine people that looked like this in their relationships. It would be something to marvel at, wouldn't it? Something quite miraculous. In fact, if we jump back to uh, Ephesians, one of the things that they so frequently forget as they dive into 22 through 33, completely missing the point, is verse 21. Holy cats, maybe we should read the whole context of the scripture, which says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who is left out of the one another? I've heard so many women in my office say, I am not the, one of the one another's. And I've heard so many men sitting in my office say, I am not one of the others. They say, I, have, uh, I tried, but she did this. I tried, but he was like this. And I gave up. When did Jesus give up? When he died, right? He gave up the ghost. When should you give up? When you're dead. That's when you get to give up on your marriage. When you're dead. I think y'all promised that, didn't you? I seem to have heard that many times, people standing in front of me, till death do us part. Such an interesting thing. Most often, I find, as I am watching marriages fall apart in my office, there is one core reason. You ready for the real talk? One core reason that marriages don't make it. You ready? You ready? You're selfish. And I know you're sitting there saying to yourself, well, I know she is. <laughs> You've missed the point. You, sir, generally speaking, have been selfish for many, many years, and she is finally fed up with it. And it's not that she's not being selfish as well. It's just you got there first. What did the scripture say? Let's put, it in, let's put it in common parlance. If we could like wrap this up in one thing, how about stop being selfish? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop it. Now, I'm not saying this because it's easy. I know there is nothing you want to do less than stop it. And yet my message to you is pretty simple. Stop it. Stop it. Part of the problem um, 
And I, and I speak of this uh, from experience. Uh, Laura and I have had a rough patch. She's not in here. <laughs> Somebody go back to the nursery. Make sure they turn that thing down. <laughs> we had a rough patch over the... I mean, we've had so much going on. And I tell you what, we are just, we're just mad at each other for the past couple of weeks. Just mad. Which is so convenient that I had to write a sermon about you know, marriage. So we kind of had to work things out. Sitting in the hospital this week, Laura says, we need to talk about this. And I said, yeah, we do. And we talked about it. And we fixed it. Right? Because if you're married to somebody for 13 years, at some point, you're going to get mad at them. If you're married to somebody for a week, man, good luck, right? I mean, this is, let's get that real, right? It takes work. It takes work to tell, to tell myself, you know what, Jordan, you want to be really selfish, and you've got to knock it off. And Laura to say to herself, I, I want to be really selfish, but I, I've got to knock it off. And together we come to a place. And part of the problem is the stories we tell. Really believe it is the stories that we tell. Ladies, how often have you watched the romantic comedies or the dramas? There's incredible moment and this, you know, there's like all this touchy feely nonsense. And like they're they're all together, and then the guy, there comes this moment that the guy's finally given up everything for this girl, and the girl comes running at him and they kiss, and you're like, Oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? When's the last time he did that for me? And Laura's not in here, so she can't say when he was 21. Like, I peaked, like, then. Like, I just get crankier with time. It's not getting better, right? I can't live up to this. I could barely live up to this once a year, let alone how often y'all watch these movies. And we tell this story over and over again. You buy the books, you watch the movies, and you get caught up. And you think to yourself, this is what love looks like. And when that doesn't happen, don't we get disappointed? Guys, are we any better? I can't put up the images I should put up here to talk about what we think about ladies and what we're looking for in marriage. I grew up watching James Bond. I wanted to be James Bond, mainly because he had awesome cars and awesome guns but if that shapes the way you think about women when you hit the dating world goodness sakes and i get we get disappointed don't we when women don't live up to that image how could they how could they possibly how could they possibly and they don't even want to which is what's so terrible i don't want to do this and laura doesn't want to live up to that and so we're completely disappointed all the time because the stories we tell ourselves over and over and over again about what it should look like and it never does. And so I have people sitting in my office saying, we don't love each other anymore. And I worry for my daughters. Because what we're seeing now coming up more and more often are how young children are seeing, and I'm calling them children, are seeing pornography And it is shaping the way that they see the dating relationship and they enter into the dating relationship expecting sexual activity immediately. I saw pornography for the first time when I was 10 years old. That was when you had to like sneak over to a friend's house and watch a VHS tape in the middle of the afternoon in a weekday. Now you got on your phones. And we are killing ourselves with lies. 
These stories aren't true. No one can ever live up to it. And so we're constantly looking, 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 and never finding. And why are we surprised then when people stand together in front of me and they promise before God and before men, and yet what they have in the back of their mind is this is what it will look like, and of course it doesn't look like that. So why are we surprised when the boy says, well, she doesn't live up to it, and he goes to find someone who does, and she says, well, he doesn't live up to that, and she goes to find somebody. How often do you hear this? Find somebody that makes you happy. Have you heard that? Say that to yourself for a second. Find someone that makes you happy. Do you hear that for what it is? Find someone who makes you happy. What happens when that someone doesn't make you happy? Because within the first week of marriage, you'll find out. They don't always make you happy. But we say this, and we say it to one another. Well, should I? I don't know, man. I'm, I'm really not happy in this marriage. And then your girlfriend says, well, you, you should be happy. If happy is the apex for the good, the beautiful, and the true, and that's what we're after, that is a sad story. I look at this. This isn't even a beautiful story, let alone a true story. What's a beautiful story look like? It looks like a lifetime of this. It looks like Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found as a human in likeness. Emptying all his glory, all his honor, all his position, all, all, his, all his rights to say, this is what I want to be happy. Emptied it completely, being formed in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so God exalted him, exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every Knees should bow. That is a beautiful story. And this is how Paul can say things like this. For scarcely will a righteous person die. We can imagine a good person going overseas to lay down their life to defend their family or their friends or their loved ones. But can you imagine someone dying for their enemies? Because that's what Jesus did for you. That is a beautiful story. It is not only true, but it is beautiful and it is good. It is good. Giving up is not good. Throwing in the towel is not beautiful. Casting aside your word and your covenant is not true. And we have stopped, as a society, have stopped looking for real beauty, real truth, real goodness. We have forgotten it completely for the fast and the cheap and the pleasurable. And it is sad. It's sad. It's sad. And this isn't something that's new. It is from Genesis to Revelation. This image of God and his deep love. I love uh, Hosea. And perhaps maybe you have read this before. But Hosea chapter 2 has this whole image of, of God's people who have run around like the harlot. They've slept with everyone in town. Gone to every God, every shrine. They've given up everything. And what does God say? I'm done with you. You're a harlot. You cheated on me. You're an adulteress. I don't, I don't want you anymore. Is that what he says? He says, no, I will allure her. 
I will bring her back into the wilderness, pulling her away from all of those cheap and tawdry things. And I will speak tenderly to her. And I will give her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And then she will answer me as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. What do these verses tell you about love that no one in our society will tell you about love? It is that love is primarily designated by a word we have forgotten completely, loyalty. Loyalty. It is the power of a covenant. It is the power of consistency. It is the power of saying, I will not quit. I will not surrender. I will see this through to the end. And it doesn't matter what arrays against our marriage, against our relationship. I will not say, I'm done. And that is what is missing in all of the stories. Because, man, we, if we could ever live up to this moment... It would be a moment, right? They don't show you after she kicked out a kid and they haven't kissed for three weeks. They don't show you when people are sick and, and you're going to work and she's going to work and, and everyone's going to work and then everybody's throwing up and then everybody's crying. And the, I mean, they don't show you any of the stresses of real life. This is fiction. And so is the woman on the website. And it's a lie. And what I'm encouraging you all to see is to see through the tawdry, the vapid. I'm not saying, I'm not saying go burn all your Nicholas Sparks book, books. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying never go to the movies again. I'm just saying see things that are true. Uh, see things that are real. And pursue things that are true. And pursue things that are real. Listen, if you eat Sour Patch Kids for all your meals... You're a child. <laughs> and you shouldn't get married. <laughs> and what we need to do is to put away childish things. To grow up into maturity. Because maturity is beautiful. Maturity is true. Maturity is good. And it is something that we should aspire to, which doesn't mean don't have Sour Patch Kids once in a while. But it does mean fill yourself with stories that you actually can live out and would actually want to live out day after day after day. Because this is the self-giving love of the covenant. This is what we see here in the text, this is the beauty of God in us. And this is what I think marriage is a microcosm of this. Because as Laura and I are going through this rough patch, you're going through a time of difficulty, I know that I am never leaving her. And I know that she is never leaving me. And what does that mean? We can either be miserable for the rest of our lives, or we can learn how to reconcile. The most beautiful word in all of scripture might be this one word, reconciliation. For God loved you so much. God, kenosis. God emptied himself. 
that he might allure you and pull you from the cheap and the tawdry and might draw you into the wilderness so that he can speak tenderly to you, so that he can speak love to you, so that you can hear the voice of truth and goodness and beauty and respond to it and be reconciled to God. And this is the exact same thing, every single one of you, be you the hurt or the hurted, be you the husband or the wife, you are called to do. And let me stretch it just outside because there are many people here who are not married, not intending to. Wonderful. Continue the course. Every relationship for the Christian ought to look like this. Is Paul speaking to married people in Ephesians 2? Yes. Is he speaking to dating people in Ephesians 2? Is he speaking to people who are never going to get married and don't intend to? Yes. He's speaking to Christians. He says, if you're going to be Christ-like, then be Christ-like for crying out loud. Stop talking about him. Stop singing to him. Stop arguing about him and be like him. It's what your name Christian implies. This is why marriage can be beautiful and true. Because while some of you I can watch go merrily on your own way and talk to Laura in the car about how much I don't like you, if I don't like Laura, there's no one to talk to, right? I have to make peace. You have to make peace. You have to make peace. You have to make peace. Peace. Because this is what it is to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you do what you want. If you are a Christian, you look like Christ. And so, here are my four solutions to happy marriage, such as they are. And they look... Something like this. In my life and in our marriage, and Laura's not here to say amen, praise the Lord, I am usually the jerk. So my first point is this, don't be a jerk. And when you are, say you're sorry. Lots of things help with this. Flowers help with this. Candy helps with this. Paul doesn't know what to do because I didn't go all the way to the floor. Okay. I didn't think about it until he was like, sort of like, I, do I, is this, what am I, that, this is halfway, I don't know what to do with this. Commit. Commit. Don't be a jerk. Husbands and wives, stop being jerks to one another. And if you are, say you're sorry. Because sometimes you will be, yes? And when you are, say you're sorry. 99%, probably 99.9% of marriages could be fixed with simple, this very simple, just, just, Number two, if she says she's unhappy, this is for you men, and this is because I've sat uh, people, with people across from me many times, and please, for the love of God and your marriage, hear me. I have heard so often husbands say, I don't know what's happening, I don't know what we're doing here, and she says, I've been telling you I'm unhappy for a long time, and he says, when did you tell me? And she says, all the time, and he says, I don't remember ever hearing it. Why? I think because I'm unhappy 
all the time. Well, not all the time. That sounded really bad. I have bad days, and I might say on that bad day I'm unhappy. And so what sometimes men hear when they hear their wives say, I'm unhappy, they hear, I'm having a bad day. If she says to you, I'm unhappy, or we need to get counseling, your marriage is almost over. If you call me, your marriage is over. If a man calls me on the phone and says, we need help, it is nearly universally too late. If the woman checks out emotionally, good luck. The only thing that can help you is the grace of God and a miracle. And so I am pleading with you, men, hear this. If your, if your wife says, I'm unhappy, take it seriously. Take it seriously. Too many marriages, I, I've just seen this too many times. Three, be intimate as often as possible. I, I feel like I have to include this. I won't go into that. You can figure that out. Flowers will help this, gentlemen. This is, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Four, do not wait until it's too late. And if you're thinking to yourself, is now the time? Yes, now is the time. All of these messages that we've been talking through and working through, if at any point you say to yourself, man, we might be in this situation. Man, I might be depressed. Man, I might have a real issue with this anxiety thing. Man, these children are, are going nuts and I don't know what to do. Please get some help. There is no shame in it. It is completely human for marriages to go through rocky periods. This is marriage. It's life. It's hard. And you aren't alone. It's life. It's hard. And you are not alone. So our text this morning encourages us, whether you're married or not married, whether you're dating or engaged, I want to encourage all of you to think deeply about your lives, to think deeply about what it looks like to have the privilege and the honor to know Jesus, to have his spirit in you, and to call yourself by this glorious title, Christian. Because in all of its glory and honor and eternality, in all of its truth and beauty and goodness, also, there is a grave responsibility to consider others more significant than yourselves. To do nothing out of your own ambition and conceit. To look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. To have within your day-to-day -day attitude that of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Let's stand and sing praise to him.